Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, we are thrilled to have poet Sarah Holland Batt discussing her poetry collection, The Jaguar, with author Emily Bitto. With boldness, Sarah Holland Batt confronts what it means to be mortal in an astonishing and deeply humane portrait of a father's Parkinson's disease, and a daughter forged by grief. The Jaguar is an indelible collection by a poet at the height of her powers. Here's the recording of the event. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Readings Carlton. My name is Nico. I'm one of the events team here at Readings, and I'm very glad that you're all able to be here with us tonight to celebrate this wonderful book. I'm not going to speak too much because I'll leave it to the people you're actually here to see tonight. But before we get going, I would just like to sincerely and earnestly acknowledge that the place that we're gathering today here is Indigenous land. This is the Kulin Nation and this is the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Woiwurrung people. And I would like to sincerely pay my respects to the elders of the past, the present and those yet to come. And I would also like to acknowledge that if there are any Indigenous Australians here with us tonight that I hope you feel welcome and I hope we can look to a better future. For tonight, I would like to introduce Aviva Tuffield to my left here. Aviva is the publisher of the wonderful book that we're here to celebrate tonight. And Aviva is going to speak for introducing our interviewer and our interviewee. So I hope you have a wonderful time and thank you very, very much for coming. Thank you. I too would like to acknowledge that we're on Wurundjeri lands um, of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to um, the traditional custodians. I'd also like to thank the Inestimable Readings Bookstore for hosting this launch tonight. Independent booksellers are the lifeblood of the literary community, and we must not forget that. Um, it is an honour to be here about to listen to these two incredible authors in conversation. Sarah Hollenbeck is well known as an outstanding teacher and critic, and most recently advocate for the aged care sector. But many would argue her reputation has been forged by her work as a poet. It is here that her superlative talents are fully evident and where her writing finds few equals. She is truly one of this nation's best living poets and her exalted position will only be cemented further with her new book, The Jaguar. The exceptional elegiac poems that bookend this collection are a tribute to her father and a testament to what was taken from him and from her by his long illness and death. But, that po but those poems and many others in this collection are also replete with the joys of life and love and beauty and the ironies and vicissitudes of those things. There is a boldness throughout, self-awareness and a playfulness with language that dazzles and leaves the reader transformed. Don't just take my word for it, for this book's brilliance. An early review in The Australian noted that, and I quote, the poems about her father are among some of the most powerful written on this subject, and many readers will be profoundly affected by them. While the poet Maria Takalander has said, I have no hesitation in describing this as Sarah Holland Batt's best poetry collection yet, adding that her refusal to compromise sits in delicious tension with the technical beauty of the work. This collection reveals to us a poet at the height of her powers, and it is an absolute privilege and honour to publish your work at UQP, Sarah. I also just want to point out that we have just gone to reprint 
in the first month of publication with the Jaguar, which for a poetry book, I have to say, is a remarkable feat. So congratulations. Now I'd like to introduce Emily Bitto, who has kindly agreed to be in conversation with Sarah here tonight. Emily Bitto is a writer of fiction, non-fiction and poetry, and has a PhD in creative writing from the University of Melbourne. She is the author of The Strays, which won the 2015 Stella Prize, and her new novel, Wild Abandon, is currently on the Arbia shortlist for literary fiction for Book of the Year. So congratulations, Emily, and welcome to you. Thanks, Aviva. And thank you so much to Readings for having us tonight. It's an absolute pleasure to be in conversation with my old and dear friend uh, and absolute genius, Sarah holland Vat. I would also just like to pay my humble respects to the um, traditional custodians of this land to acknowledge that we're on unceded uh, land of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging um, and to extend that respect to any First Nations people that might be here and also uh, listening to this as a podcast, which it is being recorded as. <laughs> I'm just going to read Sarah's bio before we start because it's very impressive. <laughs> So Sarah Holland-Batt's an award-winning poet, editor and critic and professor of creative writing and literary studies at QUT. Her first book, Aria, was the recipient of a number of national literary awards. Her second book, The Hazards, won the 2016 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry. And her most recent book is Fishing for Lightning, before this one obviously, um, a collection of her poetry columns written for The Australian. She's the recipient of a Sydney Meyer Creative Fellowship um, and uh, Australia Council Literature Residency at the BR Whiting Studio in Rome, among many, many other honours. She's also presently the Judy Harris Writer-in-Residence at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> so we don't have heaps of time tonight, so I'm just going to jump straight in. Sarah... The Jaguar is an absolutely virtuosic, brilliant, oh. devastating collection of poetry. It's your third collection and undoubtedly among the strongest work that you've produced. It centres on the figure of your father who died in 2020 after a long battle with Parkinson's and dementia. Could you perhaps just start tonight's conversation talking a little bit about your father's experience and, and your own and how you came to write this collection and then I would love you to just start us off by reading um, the first extraordinary poem in the collection, My Father as a Giant Koi. Yeah, sure. Okay, that was a lot of questions in one. <laughs> and I'll do my best to take them one at a time. So, Dad, Dad had Parkinson's, was diagnosed when I was 18. And for a very long time, I didn't think I'd write any poems about that experience at all. It's, it's quite a profound thing to watch someone you love slowly sort of become someone else and and that's kind of what it felt like and he was really devastated because he was relatively young when he was diagnosed he was 64 you know just on the cusp of retirement and it was sort of like the shape of all of our lives changed pretty much instantaneously and coming to terms with it I was more taken with watching dad come to terms with it and it took a really long time for me to, I suppose, even register the effect on me, which is probably quite common, I think, for children with ageing parents. You're more concerned about them and it, it takes some time then 
to find a language for what you've been through. And I think that was the case with, with that experience. You know, it went all through... He was diagnosed when I was 18, so it was, it was quite kind of an omnipresent experience through my 20s and 30s. But it was really only after... You know, Dad had had Parkinson's for about 15 years that I became even able to, to think about writing about it. And in a way, it's not a subject I would have chosen necessarily, but with poetry, your material is what life hands you in a way. And it's probably, it is among the most profound things that I've sort of witnessed and experienced. But then the challenge I think about writing about it as well is that we don't have a very good language for these topics because we're not actually very good at talking about ageing, about thinking about dying. It's a topic that we have a lot of fear, I think, about. And if I'm being honest, I do as well. It's something, it is quite difficult because we resist imagining it. And for that reason, our language about grief and ageing is pretty stunted and there's a lot of sort of cliches that we fall into and I really thought to write about it, I needed to try and move out of that lexicon, of that, that easy language that we have. And so it did take a long time, I think, to write the poems for, for that reason as well. I think you mentioned in a session I saw you at recently that um, you wrote most of the poems about your father in the months after he'd died, is that yes, right? Yes, that's yeah. right, yeah. In a way, many of the poems focus on the week of his death and dying and I hadn't realised until I'd been through it, I think, quite simultaneously how slow and painstaking that can feel, even though it's only a matter of days. I mean, everyone in this room will have experienced that with someone that they love in their life and it, it sort of moves, time moves very, very quickly in a sense, but extremely slowly. And those were the moments that... You know, I was aware that Dad's life was slipping away in this very banal setting, that something enormous was happening. And that, that seemed to be the staging ground imaginatively for how to, I suppose, convey what, what was going on for him. So I wrote those poems after he'd passed away, but a few came beforehand. But I have to say, it is one of those things, lots of things in life, I think you need to see them in their totality before you can find a way to write them. And I think as he was, you know, losing losing his memory and changing, that was difficult to perceive. And, and only sort of afterwards did I gain a little bit of perspective on it. Yeah. You wanted me to read a poem, didn't yes. you? Yes. Yeah, okay. um, just the first poem would be Okay. Great. Thank I'll you. I'll read the first poem. My father as a giant koi. <coughs> My father is at the bottom of a pond, perfecting the art of the circle. He is guiding the mottled zeppelin of his body in a single unceasing turn, like a monorail running on greased steel, like an ice skater swerving on a blade. His scales are lava and ember dappled with carbon. His tail, a luxurious Japanese fan. He is so far beneath the green skin of duckweed he cannot make me out, or I him. What he knows is shrinking into round facts, days like mossed stones, each the same weight, spears of water hyacinth rising around him like jail bars, reek of peat. He has been down there for years, ancient god of the dark, keeper of the single koan, moving in currents, 
Only he can sense, fluent as a windsock. He surfaces three times a day when the nurse brings a tray, cold blanched carrot and beef, white sauce fillet of whiting, pound cake. He cannot trust the scratched headlamps of his eyes, so he navigates by feel, angling his huge whiskered head, mouth first towards the fork, weaving like an adder charmed by smoke. Then he bites down to find the world suddenly there again, solid as metal and bait. Thank you. It's exquisite. So I think that poem is really kind of gives us a beautiful, original, very striking way into I think a lot of the concerns of this book and I think it beautifully illustrates what you were saying just before about looking for ways of writing about this that go beyond those kind of cliched images. Before I kind of get into the, the kind of bigger themes and while this poem is still sort of fresh in our minds, I would like to just ask you about imagery, sort of in this poem, but as a way of kind of thinking about how you treat sort of imagery throughout this book. Sorry, I'm a, a bit of a nerd, so I'm kind of slipping in the <laughs> craft question early on. Forrest Gander talks about the book's intense wordplay, synesthetic sensual registries and double analogies. And I sort of really noticed that in this poem and in a lot of other poems you describe particular experiences or objects or people with a lot of different images that often are sort of almost like in opposition. And in this poem you've sort of got the image of the fish, the ancient god, the sort of uh, Buddhist monk, and then you've kind of got these mechanised images of the monorail, the scratched headlamps of the eyes, which kind of recall the jaguar car of the title. And, yeah, I just thought I would ask you to talk a little bit about, yeah, what you were kind of doing with imagery here and metaphor and, and throughout the book. Yeah, I think that's the great trick of the poem is that you can make people see things in, in a really kind of instantaneous way if you if you use metaphor well and it's something I think about a lot like what is metaphor it's a way of summoning an image that isn't actually there in the scene it's a it's a means of summoning something that's not present and I love that act of trying to find something that is like something only in one way and, and the trick of the poem in making that material for the reader. And I think probably because I enjoy it so much, I end up with like 50 metaphors where one could serve. And sometimes, sometimes I do end up putting a few of them in because Elizabeth Bishop does this very well as well. She will sort of refine an image through the poem. So you'll start with a sort of large image and then it will become, she almost sort of corrects herself as the poem moves and, and sort of winnows in on something more and more specific. And I think that's something that resonates with me when I read her poetry because I think I have the same kind of imagination that's, that's interested in, in likeness and, and actually probably the micro, not the macro, you know. And so part of my process is finding the correct image and in a way, it's a way of inviting the reader elsewhere at the same time as you're describing a scene. You know, you can, you can bring two things in. And I think it's interesting you say they're in opposition. I think they often are. And mm. I, I, quite, I quite like that. But there often will be, I think, for me, a sense of the way the images are linked. They might be linked through ideas of predation or the natural world or something like that. But they don't always have to be exactly in the same 
thinking through the one metaphor, but I do enjoy that as well. I don't know if that really answers your question. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think it also sort of made me think, you know, that's that almost the first image there of the sort of turning, mm. you know, perfecting the art of the circle. You know, a lot of the ideas and central kind of themes in this collection are so ineffable and almost impossible to kind of describe that, you know, it sort of sets us up for... I feel like that's kind of what you're doing in this whole collection is turning around and around this subject that is, you know, almost impossible to kind of express. Yeah. And it's funny, like, that figure of the circle was sort of how I felt my relationship with my dad went, which was that every now and again he'd almost be like himself again and you'd get this feeling that, like, you know, in this cyclical way sometimes you'd, you'd catch a glimpse of the person that you knew and then they'd be gone again. And there was that sort of continual feeling in our relationship of trying to retrieve that and watching it go and watching it come back. And so, yeah, it's interesting. I think all of all three of my books also have started with images of circles, you know, as, as a kind of motif. So I, I was kind of aware of that. I think a lot about beginnings and endings. And so I was thinking about the way books begin and end as well in placing that one there. Amazing. The other thing that really struck me in this poem was this image of your father being underwater and you say he's been down there for years. In the last poem in the collection, In My Father's Country, you write, at times I glimpse the iceberg tip of your subterranean mind, but you're away mostly and so am I. And I guess that's sort of what you've just alluded to as well, the fact that he kind of seemed like he was elsewhere and then occasionally he would sort of reappear. That issue of where your father was mm. during that long decline is a really fascinating question and it seems like it's not just death itself that's kind of beyond knowing in these poems but this these ideas of like the self and the mind. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, writing these poems might have shaped your thinking about those ideas or, or, or vice versa? I think it's very weird and, that you know, the reason I say it's weird is something quite strange happened in the last week of Dad's life, which is a phenomenon that is called terminal lucidity, which is, I mean, doctors sort of don't really count it as a medical observable phenomenon, but nonetheless, they've been writing about it for a couple of centuries, which is the idea that even people who may have schizophrenia or serious mental illness, cognitive decline, often in the last weeks or days of their life become like themselves again. And I experienced that with Dad about three days before he died. They take you off all of your medication as well. So for the first time in 20 years, he was off his Parkinson's medication and he became completely like himself, followed a conversation, was laughing at the appropriate time, you know, and kind of making references, actually, little in-jokes that we hadn't shared for 20 years. And so the idea that cognitive decline means that all those memories are irretrievable I think is it's quite mysterious actually what happens when someone has declined because there are these moments of lucidity of retrieval and so I think even just after watching all of that I'm not really sure I'm less sure than I was I think I believed a sort of quite simplistic medical narrative that you know the synaptic connections in the brain are gone when you when you have those forms of decline and the person becomes worse and worse in in the kind of common way of thinking about it but then there were moments when dad was really like himself again right to the end and and then so much like himself right before he died so I hope I hold those complexities in tension I guess you know with one another I don't think it's as simple as to say someone's losing their mind or losing themselves because there's still a self there in front of you, 
at that moment as well. There's still someone there feeling things, observing things, just not the person that you thought they were, you know, so it's complicated. Yeah, I think you absolutely do beautifully express that. What about, did it sort of change your relationship to your own, you know, thinking about your own mind and your own knowability? <laughs> Makes me... That's a, a big question, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it, it makes me feel really grateful to be in my right mind in that sense. I feel, a, I think it was a very big perspective shift to watch someone, you know, grapple with Parkinson's in my early 20s. I think most people more likely to encounter that in their 50s or 60s with an, with an ageing parent maybe in front of them. And so I don't know that it's changed my relationship with my mind. It makes me more nervous, actually. And I'm reading a lot of neuroscience at the moment, which is only more alarming, actually, about, you know, what what is the self? What is the personality? These things that we like to believe are so intrinsic and in some way self-shaped. We like to believe that we're in control of our personality. I certainly like to believe that. But the more you sort of look into it and look into the science of it, really it, it can change with just the, the tiniest shift in your brain chemistry and, and your preferences, your the things that make you laugh, your sense of humour, all of these things that we think are kind of integral to who we are can, can shift instantaneously. So I don't know if that's an answer. It makes I just feel more nervous, actually, the more I think about these things. But it is important to think about them, I think, and grapple with them because they may be in our future, you know. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm sort of curious as well because I feel like this collection is probably, compared to your first two collections, less less traditionally kind of confessional, I guess. You, the, the sort of persona of the sort of speaker is less in the foreground. Is that something that you deliberately try to kind of weave into this book or, or so you think that the speaker is less present in this book or yeah less, less present that's yeah that's interesting because I feel like it's quite a it's so personal I feel that this is probably the most exposing you know kind of poetry but it's probably more the speaker is observing it's mm. it is about me looking at my father really mm. that the book is kind of an extended act of witness in that way but yeah I did really struggle actually with the ethics of writing about dad in this state you know I think it is it's something that you you want to weigh up really carefully as well I didn't want to visit an indignity on him in writing these poems but I also think they're not considered like proper subjects for poetry in, in many ways and so I think it is important to have a, a poetic and literary imaginative language for these experiences that are actually totally universal and, and really important that we think about and we don't do enough but I did wrestle with just how much to expose personally and also you know about about dad mm. yeah yeah that makes sense on that I mean I think it you know reading it and then rereading it to me it was only the sort of second time that it really struck me that this is not just the father's story it's also the daughter's story um, which is I guess exactly what you're saying and so I thought, as well as reading, you know, the poems about your father, I would ask you to read uh, one of the poems that's a little bit more, uh, you know, centering that, the, the experience of the witness or the, the child. I mean, it's got a lot of other stuff going on here as well. But it's thalassography. Thalassography. I have known these estuaries, the channels and canals, the backwaters that flush and eddy to the Pacific... I have skimmed that muddied slurry, felt the nip in the throat where the salt in the air is the salt of the coast. 
I have tacked where the tide is incomplete. No rollers and breakers, only an ebb that rocks the wayfarers. A rush of silver, the gavel smack of mullet in the night. Mud crabs elbowing denwards under concrete slabs of boat ramps. I have stalked where herons stilt and spear bait fish in green afternoons. Cast crab pots in loose analemmas to watch the back sonar spread. Tracked prawn trawlers on the broad water, crawling in the lavender dawn. Then sat at the jetty's edge and shucked those tiger shells. Cast sucked heads back into the dark. Crushed muscles underfoot for the burn of sharpened chitin. Stepped where stingrays wallow an idol, shuffling their barbs, waiting to strike. I've spent half my life in low tide. Nights where I have not known if I'm contracting or dragging out again. Where the movement of the water is the movement of my mind. Unending comings and goings of sounds and narrows. Those entry points to my two continents. And my history is the history of currents. A canal small enough to catch a childhood in its net. Water vast enough to divide a life. Thank you. That's beautiful. <laughs> love it. <laughs> I'd love you to talk a little bit about the image of the jaguar in this collection. The jaguars appear in, in a number of forms. There's the luxury car that your father bought and then sort of tinkered to death in the title poem, The Jaguar, but there's also numerous other references to jaguars. And even just hearing that poem reminded me of there's also a lot of references to kind of the act of hunting, stalking. In I think it's the last poem, you say, I've come hunting you. So not just, I guess, jaguars, but those sort of related images. And also uh, references to Central and South America, which I found really fascinating. One of the early poems, Brazil, you describe your ailing father's fantasies about taking the family on a trip to Brazil, flying business class. And you end the poem with these lines. I see the silverware gleaming in front of him. I see him lifting a cup filled with jaguar's blood up to the light, how it gleams like wine. I see the raw jaguar's heart filleted in the finest slivers, carmine red, laid out like a stinking meat flower in front of him, which again is such a striking and kind of original image. And yeah, I just wondered if you could talk about the way that the jaguar sort of, the image of the jaguar structures this collection? It's really weird. I only realised how many jaguars there were in the book when I was actually looking for a title. And I was thinking, it was a very hard book to title actually. And I was thinking about, okay, what are the motifs, you know, that, that kind of show themselves? And then I realised at that point that not only was there the book about the car, which my father managed to buy himself on eBay after he'd surrendered his driver's licence and didn't mention that to my mother and was not popular in our family afterwards having done so but but the image of the apex predator and and the I think jaguars fascinate me because they're apex predators but they're almost impossible to spot and so there's a huge element of mystery about them that they're kind of these silent but you know present observers in a landscape and that the prey will have no concept that the jaguar is there until 
until it's kind of gone. And I did think a lot about hunting and predation and I think that was kind of a way of finding a language for what was going on with Dad, that there was, in a sense, this force that was that was dragging him under, that he wasn't sure where it was kind of coming from. But also I think the act of looking, for me, was an act of kind of hunting for a language. And so, yeah, they make sort of surprising appearances, but it's it's really weird. It actually was only after I, I reread the entire manuscript and thought, oh, my God, there's about seven poems that have jaguars in them in addition to the title poem. It obviously was just an image that that was kind of living in my head in some way. And it's interesting you pick up on Central America and South America. Like, I am obsessed with Central America and the animals and the kind of density of animals in those cloud forests and jungles and spent a little bit of time there but just really felt somehow that that small amount of time produced this enormous kind of imaginative library in my head. And so I do find myself fascinated by those those animals and the density of, you know, biodiversity that, that's there and the, the little kind of chains of hunting and predation and survival that go on in this very tightly held kind of territory. And so, yeah, it, it just sort of seemed to happen that those were the images that my brain was drawing up as I was trying to observe the most human of things, really, which is something that we don't really see in the animal world, you know, animals living long enough to experience cognitive decline and so forth. That just doesn't happen in the animal world. But nonetheless, that seemed to be where my brain wanted to go. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think that sort of reflects back on what I was clumsily trying to get at earlier about, you know, the presence of the sort of narrating self, you know, is sort of hard to spot. It's there in the environment kind of looking very keenly but not, you know, not at the centre, which is, yeah, really interesting. So I would like to just zoom out a little bit now, if that's okay, because because of the, you know, unbearably painful experience of witnessing your father's neglect and abuse in an assisted living facility, you've become a very active advocate for aged care. You spoke to the Royal Commission and you continue to write and speak and tweet regularly on the subject. Do you see these poems as kind of of a piece with that work or as occupying a completely different space for you or how are they kind of connected or separate for you? I think they're quite separate in that for me these are personal poems that are about something, about my relationship with Dad and and I think of these as literary works and I think no one would want to read the didactic political version of these poems. It would just be aged care statistics and I don't think that would make a very good poem. You know, I think what these poems do ask the reader to do is to imaginatively enter that region that we're reluctant to imagine. And I think that's what literature can do in response to sort of complex social problems is not necessarily tell us how to think. You know, I do have my own sort of more didactic views about what I think should happen in aged care reform, but I think... I think in a way, actually, what the poem can do is create empathy and create a space of, you know, considering our frailty and, yes, considering my dad's frailty, but but presumably the reader is invited into that intimate space, you know, and thinking about their own parents or their own relationships or their own ageing. And I think for me that's that's where I would leave it in terms of what I hope the poems achieve. I hope they're literary poems and I think there is a good space for robust public discourse but I don't see my poetry as being part of that, if that makes sense. Yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. But it's interesting that you're kind of 
also aware that poems can do something mm. very particular that maybe that public discourse is not able to achieve. Yeah, I think what poems do is they, they create empathy. You know, they bring us into close contact with, with someone else's intimate experience, whether it's this or poems about any, any intimate experience. You, you're invited into the interior world of the speaker, of the imagination. It's, it's an art of close contact. And I think, you know, that's maybe what the poems do in, in bringing us into that space. But, yeah, I, I have to say political poetry about aged care, I can't think of anything worse, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Don't move into that realm. Won't be moving into that realm. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of kind of religious imagery in these poems, saints, ancient gods, visitations and hallowings. But there's an absolute refusal, if I'm reading this right, of spirituality or the sort of consolations of any idea of an afterlife. There are a couple of poems in here that made me think of Louise Glick, who I know at least used to be one of your favourite poets. Um, and in fact, you reference a wild iris in one poem, which is the name of one of her most famous books. And it just kind of made me think about the difference between that book and yours. In The Wild Iris, Glick kind of carries out a sort of dialogue with God in some form or other. And there's certainly no God here. And if we sort of discount the idea of the poem as therapy, which I think we definitely can in your case, in this really absolutely rigorous, almost sort of scientific investigation that you kind of carry out here, I wonder if you could talk about whether you see any other sort of sources of consolation in these poems or maybe in poetry itself, or do you kind of reject that idea of... I don't reject the idea of a <laughs> consolation in poetry. It would be a pretty weird idea to, to dedicate my life to the art form if I thought that. But I did find enormous solace in poetry after Dad died. I found myself ransacking my, you know, and reading voraciously quite a lot of poetry in the weeks and months after he died. And that happened during lockdown too. So I didn't have a lot else on in my social calendar. Can you remember who you Yeah, really weirdly, I got very into Geoffrey Hill, who if anyone has read him is totally impenetrable kind of biblical rhetoric. It has a sort of a sense of God in it without, a, without any kind of stated, bald, well, you know, nothing's baldly stated in Geoffrey Hill. It's all sort of couched in this semi-biblical language and I really enjoyed those poems enormously. I think there is a huge sense, for me, the act of writing the poem is, is the consolatory thing, the act of finding the precise language and I'm sure everyone has experienced that, this idea that finally putting your finger on something in some way, whatever art form it is or whatever, whatever means of communication you use, when you finally work your way through something and I think for me a lot of the poems started with a problem, like a problem of an image or something that had happened that I felt I needed to work out why it was so... I don't know, emotional for me or something that I kept returning to. And I think for me, the act of writing the poem is that act of working that through. And so there is a consolation. I sort of look at these poems and think, yes, these are things that I've worked through in this form, if, if that makes sense. So it's not religious. And, you know, Dad would, Dad would come back and murder me if I'd written religious poems about him. He was the most militant atheist. He used to we used to have people knocking on the front door, Mormons, and Dad would say, are you peddling religion and shut the door in their face? So Dad would not have appreciated a kind of, you know, religious send-off. But I think for me it is the act of writing, writing the poem that gets me somewhere close to that sense of consolation. And, and I, it seems to me that the way that you write these poems, the very sort of keen 
forensic, you know, almost sort of scientific approach to these ineffable subjects is a kind of a testament to your dad as well that he that's the way his mind worked and yeah. Yeah, he was a sort of scientific person, a scientific observer, but he also loved literature and classical music and art and probably I have kind of equal doses of both. There is a kind of forensic, you know, quality I think to to most good poetry. There's there's a you know, you're looking for what is that lovely line of Robert Lowell's, the grace of accuracy? You know, that's what you're kind of looking for in the poem. And, yeah, I hope that that's what I achieve. But I think the poem has to be more than accurate. It also has to kind of invite the reader into some form of emotional exchange or imaginative world as well. And so that's, I guess, the balancing act. Which you achieve absolutely oh. brilliantly. Oh, thank you, <laughs> And... Maybe we'll just wrap up by... I'll ask you to read one more poem, which sure. is an absolute kind of the, you know, perfect poem to show exactly what you're doing with those two ways of, of sure. writing. Sure. This poem is called The Gift. In the garden, my father sits in his wheelchair, garlanded by summer hibiscus, like a saint in a 17th-century cartouche. A flowering wreath buzzes around his head, passionate red. He holds the gift of death in his lap, small, oblong, wrapped in black. He has been waiting 17 years to open it and is impatient. When I ask how he is, my father cries. His crying comes as a visitation, the body squeezing tears from his ducts tenderly, as a nurse measuring drops of calamine from an amber bottle, as a teen at the car wash ringing a chamois of suds. It is a kind of miracle to see my father weeping this freely, weeping for what is owed him. How are you? I ask again, because his answer depends on an instant's microclimate. His moods bloom and retreat like an anemone as the cold currents whirl around him, crying one minute, sedate the next. But today, my father is disconsolate. I'm having a bad day, he says, and tries again. I'm having a bad year. I'm having a bad decade. I hate myself for noticing his poetry, the triplet that should not be beautiful to my ear, but is, day, year, decade, scale of awful economy. I want to give him his present, but it is not mine to give. We sit as if mother and son on Christmas Eve, waiting for midnight to tick over, anticipating the moment we can open his present together. First, my father holding it up to his ear and shaking it, then me helping him peel back the paper the weight of his death knocking. And once the box is unwrapped, it will be mine. I will carry the gift of his death endlessly. Every day I will know it opening in me. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been an Stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website, 
we'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you.